I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. We're looking at verses 11 through 33 this evening. Before we read from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our great God in prayer together. Our God in heaven, our Father who has adopted us in the beloved Son, who has sent the Spirit within our hearts to apply that work, we long to know you more, to love you more deeply, and to walk more faithfully according to the calling that you have given to us as your chosen and dearly loved people. And may you use our time together this evening toward that end as we trust in this means of grace that you have given to us, that cumulative effect of sitting under the teaching of your word. May your spirit be actively at work among us this night, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Exodus 30, beginning in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also bring a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy." You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've all used that phrase before, that it's a matter of life and death. 
maybe a parent uses that as a threat to their child as they're traveling down the interstate to keep their seatbelt on. Maybe an instructor uses it when he's training you for a dangerous task, handling a heavy piece of equipment, maybe getting ready for a rafting trip, or perhaps taking one of those skydiving excursions for your birthday when you strap yourself in tandem to another person. In situations like that, you're told you better listen because it's a matter of life and death. I grew up in a relatively small town in New Mexico. Never had any reason or opportunity to fly commercially until after I was married. And I couldn't understand on that first flight why no one was paying attention to the flight instructor. It is a matter of life and death. Now, we hear that phrase so frequently, it becomes really so commonplace that maybe it loses its weightiness. Maybe it doesn't carry the proper warning that it's intended. After all, we've each engaged in hundreds of matters of life and death. We've emerged unscathed. So, do I really need to pay attention to those words of warning? Now, whether we respond in increased attentiveness awareness, watchfulness, or whether we dismiss those warnings of life and death, much of it depends upon the person who is offering those warnings to us. Do they actually know what they're talking about? Do they have some level of authority and expertise? Are they just saying those things to try to get control over me, create fear in order to have power in me in some way? Now, if it's the living God telling us that it's a matter of life and death, then, of course, we would be wise to listen. We should take Him seriously and heed those warnings. Now, let's remember that the Lord began speaking to Moses atop Mount Sinai back in Exodus chapter 25. And so, for the last six chapters of Exodus, we've been learning about the tabernacle, the furnishings, the priesthood, the garments, the consecration, the offerings for him when that high priest especially is set aside for office. And tonight, as the Lord concludes instruction on these things, we find here that there are several things that are matters of life and death. The census tax is needed to make atonement for your lives. The bronze basin is there with water to wash so that the priests will not die. Any abuse of this anointing oil will result in that person being cut off from the people. Clearly, these are all important matters of instruction from the Lord. And we could say that the main theological truth that is being taught to us in these chapters, really we could say that the main theological truth from the Word of God is this, that God requires holiness to come into His presence. He requires something that we cannot offer on our own, a holiness that we all lack because of our rebellion against Him. And because of that, we all deserve to die. But the Lord has mercifully provided a way. And because of that kindness, our charge is to respond in devotion to Him. And that's essentially what we've been learning over these last few chapters in Exodus. And tonight, Let's see how Exodus 30 emphasizes that latter point, our devotion to Him. And so, first, let's think about this census tax that we read about in verses 11 through 16. So, our first point this evening might be, be numbered correctly or die. 
Now, these few verses are probably the most confusing part of the text that we'll look at tonight, and so we'll spend the bulk of our time in verses 11 through 16. That's just to warn you so that when this first point is longer than the latter two, we recognize that we'll still finish relatively on time. Now, perhaps a number of questions come to mind for you here as you think about this census tax. What is this? How is it to be conducted? And what really is its purpose? And what are some important things that we can take away from this as we think about applying this portion of God's Word to our own lives? Well, first, as we think about this census tax, it is something that is initiated by the Lord. God is the one who directs them to conduct this head count of all men 20 years old or older. And this instruction here will be carried out later in the book of Numbers. Now, the purpose for such a census in the ancient Near East would be for military reasons. This is an era of history in which there would not be a standing army, and so it would be a way for kings and rulers to know how many men they can call up if they're needed to fight. You better know how strong you are if you're going to pick a fight with your neighbor. Now, there are times when the Lord directs the people of Israel to conduct a census, but there are also times in which the Lord judges the people of Israel for taking a census. It all depends on who is calling for that census in terms of authority, and it depends upon the motive of the one who is conducting that census. And so, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David conducts a census of all of the men in Israel and throughout the land of Judah. Now, even though he is told that this is a bad idea, David goes ahead anyway and conducts this census, sending out royal officials throughout the land. And it takes them some nine months to conduct this census. But because David did not have the proper motives, and because he did not have the authority to do this, even as the king of Israel, nor was there any sort of half shekel collected when these men were counted, the Lord sends judgment, and a plague falls upon the land of Israel, and some 70,000 men are killed, which really is a fulfillment of the warning that we find here in verse 12. Now, we might look at this, this warning here, and then that narrative in 2 Samuel, and we might think, wow, that seems awful harsh. What's the big deal? Why is there such a severe punishment? Why are the stakes so high? Well, there is a proper reason to count when directed by the Lord, but clearly this census counting is a dangerous thing if one is to presume upon his own strength and might. King David got caught up in the numbers game, and out of a heart of pride, he failed to trust in the Lord to provide and to protect. Now, of course, we're not going to go around and count soldiers. I don't know any among our church family who's in such position in which they might be tempted to count soldiers under their charge. But let's think about how we might do something similar in our own lives. Maybe we find ourselves checking our 401k much more frequently than we have in the past, given these times of economic uncertainty. Or perhaps the older we get, we find ourselves calculating a little bit more meticulously to see if we have enough to make it to the end. Maybe it's counting your friends, real or virtual, and drawing some sense of worth or value from those numbers. Maybe it's counting your sales or productivity in your vocation for fear that you might lose your job if they're not where those numbers are supposed to be. 
If you're a student, maybe it's calculating your grade in your rank in your class to see where you fall among your classmates. Or maybe as you're getting close to the end of the semester, it's calculating how hard you really have to study for that final in order to get the grade that you need to at least keep your parents from punishing you. Or if you're involved in sports, it's calculating how much time you're getting on the court or the playing field compared to others who are clearly getting more preferential treatment if you're not getting as much time as they are. But you see, any time we find ourselves counting, I think it's worth asking, why? Are we looking to those numbers to boast in some way? And if those numbers are not where we think they ought to be, to come up with all sorts of excuses or fill the heart with jealousy, envy, and even being tempted perhaps toward anger? Are we presuming in our own strength, or are we taking to heart the truth? What do you have that you did not receive? Psalm 20 verse 7 reads, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so what is my motive for engaging in that numbers game, as it were, in my own life? Am I encroaching upon the Lord's authority? Am I perhaps failing to trust Him as I ought? The second thing about this census tax is that the offering required is universal and equitable. This census tax is to be paid by every man, and the amount is the same for each man. Everyone is to contribute this half shekel of silver. Now, a shekel is not a coin, but is a, a unit of measurement, of weight. And so, this would be a relatively small amount. A half shekel would be less than one half ounce of silver. And so, by no means would this be a burdensome amount. Even by today's standards, this would be less than $10 a piece. And so, rich or poor, everyone is to give the same amount. No one is more or less valuable than his brother. Someone has commented, the rich might think it but a trifle, but it could not be neglected, and none were so poor as to be unable to give. Now, the literal reading there in verse 14 is that when one passes over or when one crosses over, he shall give this half-shekel contribution. And so, perhaps as this census is being conducted, what we are to envision is all the men of Israel, 20 years old and up, lining up on one side and then dropping off their half-shekel as they pass over to the other side. And so, this act of crossing over has connotations to the Lord's deliverance when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. And this will be important when we talk more in a moment about the atonement that seems to come as a result of this contribution. Because if they have already been redeemed from slavery, they already belong to the Lord, then clearly they're not purchasing their salvation. Instead, this is a gift to the Lord out of hearts of gratitude for the privilege and wonder of their redemption. And so, as each man crosses over, we could think of this as a visible picture of that movement from judgment to peace with God, something that everyone must participate in by faith alone, a faith that is made evident in this visible act. I think it would be interesting to do a, a study throughout Scripture to see 
how frequently the Lord condescends to our weakness, giving to us visible acts to communicate spiritual realities. This is not a sacrament, as we understand sacraments, of course, but nonetheless, it is something tangible that they do that points to a greater spiritual reality, which leads us to a third thing to think about from this census tax, that this silver would be put to an important use. And so, though it would not be much for each individual to contribute, collectively, this would amount to a huge pile of silver. And this silver to be used is going to be part of the construction of the tabernacle, and everyone plays a role. Everyone gets to participate in this contribution. Now, if in the future this this contribution was collected at any other date, it would, of course, not be for the construction of the tabernacle, but for the ongoing maintenance of the tabernacle structure and later the temple. Now, back at Exodus 26, we learn that when the tabernacle, the tent of meeting proper, was constructed, the poles were to be placed inside of silver bases. And we read later in Exodus 38, verse 26, that the number of men counted in this census was over 603,000. And we learn that they collected over 13,000 pounds of silver. This is a lot of silver. And this was turned into 100 silver bases that the tabernacle structure was placed in, each one of those bases weighing just over 130 pounds. And so, as every household in the nation of Israel plays a role in the construction project, you could think of it like this, that every time a family looks upon that structure being placed up in the middle of their camp, every time they come to it to bring a sacrifice on behalf of their family or on behalf of themselves, they can remember that price paid for their redemption, which helps us to understand a fourth thing about this census tax, and that is it is for a larger purpose. And so, yes, the silver is to be used in the construction of the tabernacle, but of course the Lord has no need of this contribution. He could have created this structure on its own if He so chose to do. He could lead the people of Israel to an underground repository of silver that He kept for them to use for this purpose. And so, what is the point of the contribution? What is He teaching the people? What does this census tax accomplish? Well, we get some clues from some of the language that we read here. Verse 12, this payment is considered a ransom for the soul. It is to be paid that no plague will come, as happened under King's, King David's census in 2 Samuel 24. In verse 15 and 16, it is an offering to the Lord to make atonement. And so, it, it is a matter of life and death to supply this little bit of half-shekel contribution. And yet, it seems so small. It seems so insignificant. Why so important? Why a matter of life and death? Well, to try to answer that, let's think of this language of redemption or atonement as it seems to be connected to the contribution of money. And so, is atonement the result of this contribution? Was Rome right, after all, and the Reformers wrong? 
is this little bit of silver placed into the coffer as it rings, does the soul from purgatory really spring? Is there something to be said for purchasing salvation to contributing in some way to our redemption? Of course, you know the answer is no, not at all. And so how do we explain this silver which seems to be for the purpose of redemption, an offering that seems to make atonement? Well, to answer that, let's put this teaching here in the context of the whole. Now, we've encountered this language of ransom or redemption previously in the book of Exodus. Back in chapter 12, at the institution of the Passover, we learn that the firstborn was ransomed through the shed blood of the Passover lamb. And even prior to that, in Exodus chapter 4, 22, we read that all of the people of Israel are referred to as the firstborn of God whom He will redeem. And later in the Pentateuch, we learn that the entire tribe of Levi is to be set apart for special service to the Lord. And so the formula throughout Scripture is this, you are saved by grace through the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus. We heard that clearly this morning from Mark chapter 10. And it is that work upon the cross that becomes yours by faith alone. And the necessary evidence of that salvation is devotion to God, the God of your salvation. And so the key to understanding the reason for this census tax, I think, is found there in verse 16. This act is to serve as a remembrance or a memorial before the Lord. And so here is this tangible act to help you remember who you are something that you, again, engage in with your senses to help stir your heart in fidelity to the Lord. Now, in Scripture, and and Scott has been teaching us on this in our Sunday school class as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis uh, in the chapel on Sunday mornings, in Scripture, to remember is not mere cognitive recall, but to remember is to interpret our present circumstances in light of God's faithfulness in the past and promise as we look to the future. You might think of the example of a wedding ceremony in which the bride and groom place wedding rings upon the finger of the other as a mark, really, of ownership, a mark of devotion, a reminder to live in faithfulness to the one whom the Lord has given to you. So we could think of this as sensory involvement that aids us in remembering. And so here it helps to aid the people in the charge before them of absolute wholehearted devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so honor God with your body. 1 Peter 1.18, You were ransomed from the feudal way inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And so as a bit of silver is given for each man, as every family would be represented in this, there is this proclamation. There is a price to our salvation, costly to the Lord, but received by grace. And we all stand on equal footing 
We are all the same as sinners in need of redemption. And as we remember what the Lord has done, as we remember His covenant promises, that is to spur us on toward devotion. A.W. Pink writes, So often we dwell upon what Christ's ransom has freed us from, that He has freed us from condemnation. He has freed us from the curse of death. But he goes on, so little are we occupied with what His ransom has freed us for. By ransoming us, Christ has acquired rights over us, and He is entitled to our recognition of this in a practical way. Our lives should ever evidence the fact that we are not our own. And we see this fact taught to us further in our second main point as we go on to verses 17 through 21. We could call our second point, wash properly or die. Now, here we come to one last piece of furniture that was to be constructed and kept here in the courtyard, this bronze basin. Now, each piece of furniture, as we've talked about each one of them over these last number of weeks, each piece of furniture teaches us something of the work of Jesus. Philip Ryken remarks, that the Bible uses many images to describe God's saving work, each of which teaches us something essential. We have been redeemed. We have been ransomed. We have been rescued. We have been reborn. We have been elected, enlightened, delivered, justified, adopted, and raised to life from the dead. And this image here of being washed with water conveys the need that we have for cleansing in order to come into the presence of the holy God. Now, this bronze basin is a little bit different than the other pieces of furniture that we've seen so far because we don't learn anything about the dimensions of this basin other than it would hold enough water for the priests to wash throughout the day. And we learn that it sits on top of a pedestal also made of bronze. Now, later in Exodus 38, verse 8, we read that this base was made from mirrors that the women contributed. And of course, there is no glass at this time in history, so when you think of mirror, don't think of a conventional mirror, but this would be finely polished, reflective bronze, which is probably part of the plunder from Egypt. Now, we can only speculate here, but perhaps this mirror-like base upon which the basin itself sat would enable the priests to see themselves every time they approached to wash, to see their defilement and their need for cleansing, to see themselves that they would reflect upon their own hearts, not only as they represent the people who are in need of cleansing, but that they themselves are in need of such cleansing work over and again. Now, the basin would stand on the ground, we read, in between the bronze altar of sacrifice and the tent of meeting. And so it would be in constant use. Every time the priest would go inside that tent of meeting, he was to wash. And we know that this would happen at least twice a day as he would go inside to tend to the incense placed upon the golden altar and tend to the lampstand, replenishing the oil and, and the wicks. And not only that, we are told that before certain sacrifices, he would need to wash in this basin. And so throughout his day, 
stopping again and again. He would wash himself in this basin of water. Now, this is not only for practical reasons, to remove dirt, rather, or to remove some of the blood that would undoubtedly accumulate from the sacrifices he is engaged in, but there is this need for perpetual cleansing or he would die, as we see in verse 21. There are spiritual lessons that are being taught here. Michael Barrett points out that the position of this basin inside of the courtyard is important. As the sinner would enter into that courtyard, the first thing that he would see would be that altar of sacrifice, and then just beyond that, that basin before the tent of meeting. So Barrett writes, that is a gospel lesson all by itself. Too many people attempt to clean themselves up in hopes of qualifying for grace. The relative position of the basin to the altar makes it unmistakably clear that sinners come to the altar with their sins and cleansing follows. Read in Psalm 24, verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And who is it that can make us clean? Who is it that can purify our hearts? Ezekiel 36, 25, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And so think of what we have learned about cleansing through these several chapters. On the one hand, when the high priest was first consecrated, we read that he is to engage in this whole body washing, this cleansing ritual. We read that in chapter 29. And now we're learning that through this same basin, this same bronze basin, that there is need for ongoing cleansing throughout the day. And so there's that one initial act of cleansing that points to the definitive cleansing work of Christ in our justification, and the other points to the need for the ongoing cleansing work of Christ in our sanctification. And just think of how Jesus illustrates this in John chapter 13 on the night of His betrayal as He stoops to wash the feet of the disciples. Remember at first Peter objects to Jesus performing this act of service, but then he decides that he wants his whole body washed. Well, Jesus points out that there is this once-for-all cleansing, but at this point, the disciples are to understand the need for the regular cleansing work in their service to their Savior. In the same way, we too need the ongoing work of Jesus to continually pardon and forgive and cleanse and purify. And so, as we think of our own lives, this cleansing, of course, is not something that we perform, but it is the Holy Spirit who works such cleansing in our hearts as we look to the Word of God to bring spiritual growth and change. We make this progress, this sanctifying progress in the Christian life as we trust in His means, spending time in His Word and looking to the Holy Spirit to work. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
And so why do we need ongoing cleansing? Well, because we continue to sin against our God. And just as the basin speaks of the need for continual washing, we are to never tire of hearing of our need for the ongoing cleansing and pardoning grace of our Savior. And just as those priests would draw near with confidence, trusting in the Lord's way of provision, we draw near through the blood of Jesus, who has cleansed us, who has washed our hearts, who has sprinkled our guilty conscience. Without this, we remain under the wrath and curse of God. And that brings us lastly to the anointing oil that we read about in verses 22 through 33. So, for our third point, we might say, anoint properly or be cut off. The last time we looked at verses 34 through 38, which taught us about the formula for the incense that was to be burned upon that golden altar. Now, here in verses 22, we read about this formula for the anointing oil. Now, some of these ingredients that are listed here would have been costly, at times perhaps difficult to procure because they would come from other parts of the known world. It would be a complex process of mashing and cutting and mixing and cooking and blending all of these things together, and it would require a particular skill set for which the Lord would need to provide someone gifted in this area. And so, once all of these furnishings that we've been reading about, once all of them are constructed and complete, this sacred anointing oil would be applied to everything inside the tent of meeting and everything outside in the courtyard. Even the high priest, recall that his consecration service would receive this anointing oil placed upon his head. And so, as that oil was poured out upon everything, those things become sacred, they become holy and set apart for this special use. And so, just as we have seen with the census tax, and just as we have seen with the wash basin, here we see another wonderful picture of what devotion to the Lord is to be like. We are saved by sovereign grace. We are redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus. We are His chosen purchased, dearly loved people. And so, we are to be set apart for Him, and our lives are to be offered to Him as a fragrant offering, a pleasing aroma to Him. There's a sense, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in which everywhere we go, we are to emanate the fragrance of Christ because our identity and our union with Him supersedes everything else in life. And so, a life of wholehearted devotion means that there is to be increased consistency between our public and private lives, consistency between that outer man with words and actions and the inner man with thoughts and desires. First Peter 2 calls all of God's people a royal and holy priesthood, and so all believers in Christ have this mutual calling, this higher allegiance to give ourselves in devotion to Him. And so, just as everything is to be anointed with oil, we could say that everything that we have belongs to the Lord. Everything that we are belongs to the Lord, and everything that we do belongs to Him. From our words, to our work, 
to our relationships and our possessions, our children, our time, our talents, our desires, our longings, when we entertain within mind and heart, everything belongs to Him. And so each of these three things somewhat tie together, don't they? These are not isolated portions of instruction, but really there is, I think, an underlying theme. The census tax, the washing of hands, the anointing of oil, they're each to be taken seriously. They are all matters of life and death because all testify to the fact that we are saved by grace, that we belong to Him, and that there is no part of our lives that is reserved for ourselves. But we are saved by the precious blood of Jesus. And so we owe Him everything. And because of how precious that blood is for us, nothing that He asks of us is unreasonable. Even to give our entire lives to Him in joyful service and devotion is really nothing compared to the shed blood of Jesus for us. And just as every man, 20 years old and up, stood on that equal footing, all of us are sinners saved by grace. Humanly speaking, some of us may have more of a checkered past than others, but we are all deserving of condemnation, and we are all equally loved of the Father, all ransomed by His redemption. Male or female, young or old, whether we've grown up in a covenant home or not, the only basis for which we stand is the blood of Jesus. And just as we need the gospel to save us from the judgment to come, we need the gospel every single day. We need that good news of Jesus applied to our conscience continually. Daniel Hyde puts it like this, the Bible is a story in which we do the sinning and God does the saving. And so may our God be exalted in our lives as we seek to grow in our devotion to Him.